here for uh, these five weeks and it was a very uh, good and very uh, uh, helpful for me also to, to listen and to be be there so thank Connor for that uh, we are on chapter 45 in Isaiah today I think I'd like to get a running start here on 45 and go back where Connor ended up last week on 44 and just run back on those verses uh, a little bit here and going and get into 45. So I'd like to start on uh, Isaiah 44, verse 21, which is where I think Connor started last week, but just to run through those again. So, verse 21, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Wow, those are some fairly great Old Testament gospel verses there. Uh, so first of all, in verse 21, remember. So the prophet is encouraging Jacob and Israel indeed to remember uh, from whence they've come. Uh, the great uh, mercy that God has shown them, the, the exodus out of Egypt, the establishment in Israel. Remember, remember, remember. Uh, and I'm sure that could be a good exhortation for us also to remember <laughs> from whence you have come and the length of the journey you have been on <laughs> and how God has saved your hide many times. <laughs> <laughs> we can remember these things. Uh, verse 22, return to me for I have redeemed you. So, uh, well, this is always good. I mean, a good exhortation for Israel. It's a good exhortation for us and also to remember some of our friends and neighbors and, yea, family members who profess faith in Christ, but we don't see hiding or hair of them anymore. They are not assembling with us anymore. Uh, are they in the faith or not? No. Who knows? Uh, we can pray for them, and so that's what we can do. All right, anybody have any comment there? Everybody, we're all cool. Yes, yes Jim has one. In Revelation, other places, it says repent and return to your first love. There you go. Uh, where I'm zealous and the Lord rebukes and chases mm -hmm. his mm -hmm. children, so it's just an Encouragement constantly throughout the scriptures. We have to continue to do it. It's a life of repentance and faith. Amen. Verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Uh the Lord will be glorified in Israel. So it's, it's Yahweh who beautifies himself and will be glorified in Israel. Beautiful. Um, as we mentioned, or as Connor mentioned uh, more than once about this phrase of the Israel of God that we find in Galatians. 
it seems that uh, God has now, well, he says so in Romans, he's made out of the two, one new man. Uh, he's made out of believing Jews and all of us Gentiles, one body. It's one, it's one church, all right? Uh, and I, I mean, I, it seems to me that that's right. I mean, so whether you're worshiping at an Orthodox church or a Methodist church or Jews for Jesus over in Israel, it's yeah, it's a body of Christ. So we're one church, we're one body. It's hard. It's hard for me to maybe get that straight all the time because I, you know, I see divisions about this and that and the other. But uh, anyway, uh, the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and He's going to be glorified in Israel, and uh, and He's going to be glorified through us even in these last days. Uh, verse twenty four. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Um, so these are all really, I mean, these are like New Testament uh, teachings here. It's, it's, this all seems to me to be really New Testament. Here, the, the Lord, that is Yahweh, identifies himself as the Redeemer of Israel. A Redeemer here... Uh, it doesn't really make any difference, but I mean, this is the Hebrew word goel, it's redeemer. This is the same word used of Boaz uh, in the story with Ruth. Uh, Boaz then is the redeemer. Uh, in that case, uh, due to inheritance laws and so forth, I think clearly Boaz was interested in Ruth as being his wife, but there was a, a, there was a land question involved. I mean, he had to... He had to redeem a certain plot of land that belonged to the family to bring it back into the family. And if he did that, Ruth came with it, okay? Hey, what a deal. I mean, came to the package. Yeah, come to the package. I mean, you buy some land and the wife comes with it. All right, well, that's a good deal, okay? And so, but there was another guy, another relative who had the first right of redemption. Legally, he had the privilege of redeeming or not redeeming. And you remember the story. He said, no, I mean... He said, I've already got my will made out and my inheritance and all this stuff. I mean, if I take on another wife and then have to, I mean, I've got to do another will. I mean, you know, no, I don't want to do it. You go ahead. So, plus my wife would say no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, plus my wife would say no. <laughs> so he gives the right of redemption to Boaz, and Boaz then becomes the kinsman redeemer. So he redeems the land, and he redeems Ruth. A foreigner, check it out, uh, a Gentile of the Gentiles. She was from Moab. She was a Moabite. And then he redeems her and brings her into the Israel of God. huh? So it's a, all this is really great pictures, you know, of redemption and symbolism and all of this in the scriptures and so forth. Okay, anybody? Yeah, Talk thing, to me the other here. Thing with that, which to me is amazing, too, to think about it. Because here she was, she was just gleaning the edge of the of the wheat, mm -hmm. but what God's plan was for her to own the wheat. To give her the whole field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, means, it, means, it gives us something to think about, you know. Yeah. I mean, we were out there just wanting the edge, you know, just so yeah. humbly, you know, oh, I'm so oh, I'm just so humble, yeah. And God is saying, well, well, Paul says so in the New Testament. He says all things belong to you. Yeah. So what's your need? I mean, ask God for it. Jim. Doesn't the seed come through here? Oh, 
Yes, through Boaz and Ruth. Ruth, yes. Yeah, so this Gentile is in the physical line of our Savior. Yeah. Craig? Uh, since the closer Redeemer didn't want it because it would complicate his inheritance, <laughs> yeah. we can presume that it would also complicate Boaz's inheritance as well. Possibly. The responsibility of Ruth and Naomi. Hmm. He also dead. took, yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So he really wanted Ruth. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. it's a perfect physical demonstration of the parable of the treasure in the field. Mm. He buys the whole field. Beautiful. Thank you, Craig. I've never seen that before. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Craig. Very good. All right. Let's go to uh, verse 25. So God is saying these things about himself here. I'm the Redeemer. Uh, you're my servant, O Israel. I've blotted out your sins like a mist. I'm the Redeemer, and so on. Uh, verse 24, uh, verse 25. Mm, what? Let's see. Let's read 24 again. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all these things, who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolishness. Uh, if someone would look up Ecclesiastes 8.17 for me here and we'll read that. Um, uh, well, you've heard me go on and on about this, about how much I like these, the work that this telescope is doing in outer space, right? The James Webb Space Telescope and just, I don't know, just the vastness of it immensity of this and the and the trillions of stars <laughs> and so it's this mind-boggling to me and so God just says well I, I created all this so we worship him for that Craig do you have something no okay uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just thinking about space okay <laughs> uh, God also not only is he creator but he can turn our counsel around. Uh, so you may be a wise person, and I, indeed, I think there are some in here, and probably you're usually right. But if God wants to, he can make you be wrong. <laughs> I mean, he can turn your logical and obvious thought, he can turn it upside down. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8.17. So, go ahead. Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. <laughs> I paraphrase that when I quote it to say, even though the wise man says he knows, he doesn't know. <laughs> I mean... So this is God. I mean, He gives us wisdom, yes. He can make you look foolish, yes. He can do whatever He wants to do. I mean, because He's sovereign. He's Lord. Uh, verse 26. Who confirms the word of His servant and fulfills the counsel of His messengers. So He can, he can confirm your word if, that's, if He likes to do that. He very much can do that. Uh, the word here is servants. Yes. Yes. Who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, 
and I will raise up their ruins. Now look here in verse 26. So now we have the, uh, the, ch the change or the, or the, the prophecy as it were. Uh, let me just read what I have. Well, uh, here Isaiah now is predicting the future wasting of Jerusalem and also the return from exile of the Jews in one verse. So he begins, now this is out in the future. Let me read what I have here. Here we have a prediction of the wasting of Jerusalem and its rebuilding in one verse, in one verse. Uh, Isaiah's ministry lasted, um, these are approximate dates, uh, from 739 to 701 B.C. The exile began around 605 B.C. That would be with the decree of Cyrus around that time. So this prophecy was given about 100 years before the exile began. So this is about 100 years in the future that he's predicting here. The Babylonian captivity then would last for another approximately 70 years from 605 B.C. when they went out until the first wave of the returnees under Cyrus with that decree in 539 B.C., uh, so, but we have other waves of return after that. So as Cyrus allows, uh, is it Nehemiah, that, that those to, to go back and rebuild the yeah, temple, Nehemiah. right? I think it's Nehemiah. Uh, then, okay, then that's a wave. But that's not the end of it. I mean, they, they continue to go back. How, however many years that return lasted, I, I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't really know. Um, some years, and as, uh, well, who said, uh, someone said, uh, that, uh, Craig, that clearly all the Jews in Babylon didn't go back. I mean, they didn't go back to Israel. They'd been there 70 years. I mean, they had children and grandchildren, right? And uh, they had established and thriving businesses. I mean... Why would we go back, right? So they didn't all go back. I have met, and this has been a long time ago. It's been 30, 40 years ago. I have met uh, a young man from Iran who is roommate with a couple of other Iranian guys. Okay. I was sharing the gospel with these guys, trying to. I didn't get very far, it seems. Uh, but the Iranian young men were... Muslims are, uh, what are, are they Shiites or whatever brand they are over there? I think they're Shiite. Anyway, they were Muslims. The other third young man was a Jew. They all speak in Farsi and they, culturally they're all Iranians. Everything. This guy was a Jew. Well, his family had been there since, uh, you know, uh, since 605 B.C. <laughs> and they're still there. I mean, they're still Jews in Iran. There's a big, uh, I would think, fairly big community. So it's really interesting, I mean, historically about all this. So when they scattered, they're many in many places. Oh, they're all over the world. But 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 here in, in Iran and Babylon, in that area, they're still there. But but then we do have a big group that comes back. So if you, and I don't know the exact dates, most people that I've read or a lot of the historians say the the exile lasted about 50 years but it seems if you take those waves that went back I mean you get a longer time period than that I mean you well like God said you get around 70 years I mean, that's what it is so anyway 
So here in one verse, Isaiah is basically uh, looking out into the future and he's making these prophecies. Uh, Say of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. When Isaiah was prophesying, Jerusalem was not in ruins. So uh, people say, what are you you talking about? I mean... Our city's not in ruins. How can God raise up the ruin? Well, it will be you know, at some point in time. Okay, all right. Everybody's happy so far? All right. So now we're getting into this uh, exile and return prophecy. Verses 27 and 28. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. And here we go. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So here now, Isaiah prophetically names Cyrus as, shall we say, God's man that's going to be instrumental in the, in the return of the, Israel, of the Israelite. Not in their destruction, but in the return from Babylon. He names him. It's, this is a hundred and so many years in the future that the naming happens here. So this is prophecy. And he named Cyrus as also being instrumental in laying the foundation of the temple that's going to be rebuilt. And, as you, and we'll read it here in a second. If you remember in Nehemiah, that, that was part of the discussion. You know, the temple's laying in ruins and all of this, and that's why I'm sad and so forth, Chris. Um, so, just something I wanted to point out here before we get too far into that. Um, so this whole section, starting with verse 24, is uh, it almost reads, it's very related to the book of Job. Uh, okay. Because he's saying here in verse 24 and verse 25, you, you know, who forms you from mm-hmm. the Yeah, yeah. Who frustrates the signs? Who confirms the word of his servants? Who does all this? And this is the same sort of uh, language we see in Job 38. Yes. You know, who, who is this that, uh, who does that? Were you there when I, uh, when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know, who does this and who does, he's talking about himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting that both of those, Job and the section also calls him the Redeemer. You know. Beautiful. Uh, I hope my Redeemer lives. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a connection there. Really. Oh, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. The language is, is very similar. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, well, thanks. I'm guessing they had a Job became a very, when they were in Babylon, in captivity, it became a regular reading. One of their favorite books. Yeah. 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 I just read a piece this morning, and this is running a rabbit here a little bit. I get a newsletter from Jews for Jesus about once every month, and they just had a big... uh, uh, I guess this was before the war happened and stuff, but had a big uh, gala uh, in Tel Aviv uh, of, of Jewish artists that lived in Israel. And they invited uh, uh, all these artists in and so forth. And, uh, uh, and the theme of the, all the art, all the music, they composed songs, they did the whole thing was the Book of Job. Hmm. And, yeah, they did a whole big display, you know, in the book of Job. It, it had a lot of Israelis come in. They loved it and all this. So. Anyway, that's what they're doing. Yeah. All right. Uh, 
So, verse 28, if someone would help me with Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and someone else would help me with Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and we'll read those. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. Go ahead, Craig. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Wow. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Wow. I was in Ezra already trying to look at for these numbers. Uh, it looks like 42,000 went back to okay. Zerubbabel. All right. And uh, I think it was 15,000 went in the second wave with Ezra. Okay. So that's very small. You know, at one point, the uh, population of the tribe of Judah was numbered at 600,000. Yeah. So that's very small. So there the must have been succeeding waves after those first two. Uh, well, I would say most of them stayed in Babylon. They stayed in Persia. The vast True. majority of them, maybe less than 10%, went, went back. back. Possible. Possible. And it was in Persia where the intelligentsia lived, and they looked down their nose at the hillbillies out in the, in the actual promised land. Mm -hmm. So, but what I just read is, is clear that Cyrus is inviting all of them to go back. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, indeed. Uh, and someone, again, a similar passage, well, a different but same theme in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 8, if someone has that. Go ahead. Now it happened in the month of Nisan in the twelfth or the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. <coughs> now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it is good for the king, and if your servant is good before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it was good to the king to send me, and I gave him a set time. And I said to the king, If it is good to the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. 
and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the house of God, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because of the good hand of my God was on me. Okay. Uh, well, again, we have the theme of return and rebuilding the house of the Lord. And I am remiss here. Someone help me with the relationship between Cyrus and Artaxerxes here. Cyrus, uh, there may have been uh, insignificant leaders in between, but Cyrus was more or less uh, succeeded by Xerxes, who was succeeded by Artaxerxes. Correct. It's yeah. hard to tell historically whether Esther was married to Xerxes or Artaxerxes. Okay. But the queen he mentions here might be Esther. Wow. Okay. Very good. Well, so this is a continuing, shall we say, policy of the, uh, of the uh, Persian government uh, on this return of the Jews and so forth, and the rebuilding of the temple. So they're, they're into that. Uh, okay. Back to Isaiah 44. Uh, okay. Cyrus is going to really pull the trigger here and begin begin things go, going. Verse uh, chapter forty five, verse one. Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, and level the exalted places and break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I will call you, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. So these, these are interesting here. So it seems to me that verses 1 through 8 or perhaps 1 through 7 or, or around in there are addressed to Cyrus. Uh, in verse 1, Cyrus is the Lord's anointed. And as you might know, this is the famous word Messiah here in, in the text. So Cyrus is Messiah, is the way the Hebrew text reads. Uh, the Hebrew word is indeed Messiah. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach. It's very similar, I mean. Is what they say. Um, there is in existence a Cyrus cylinder, and I talked to Connor about this last night, that is in the British Museum uh, extolling Cyrus, telling how great Cyrus is in leadership and virtue and so forth. So let me read a little bit about this. This Cyrus cylinder is a clay cylinder was discovered in 1879, a long time ago, by Hormuz Rassam, who was working for the British Museum. It had been placed as a foundation deposit in the, one of the foundation stones of Esaglia, the city's main temple, so that's where he found it. Midway uh, through our text in scripture, the writer switches to a first person narrative uh, to Cyrus, address, uh, addressing the reader directly. 
A list of his titles is given. Well, let me back up. This is the, this is the Cyrus cylinder. This is not scripture. Midway through the text, the writer switches to a first-person narrative in the voice of Cyrus, addressing the reader directly. A list of his titles is given in a Mesopotamian rather than the Persian style. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, powerful king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer, and Akkad, king of the four quarters of the earth, son of Cambyses, great king, king of Anshan, descendant of Tespes, Great king, king of Anshan, the perpetual seat of kingship, whose reign Bel, or Marduk, and Nebo love, and with whose kingship, to their joy, they concern themselves. He describes the pious deeds he performed after his conquest. He restored peace to Babylon and the other cities sacred to Marduk, freeing their inhabitants from their yoke, and he brought relief to their dilapidated housing, thus putting an end to their main complaints. Cyrus repaired the ruined temples in the cities he conquered, restored their cults, and returned their sacred images, as well as the former inhabitants which Nabonidus had taken to Babylon. So Cyrus not only permitted these other conquered peoples to return to their lands, I mean the Jews were the main one, but they weren't the only ones. He permitted other people to return back and to rebuild their temples uh, of the whatever god they, they worship. So this was sort of Cyrus' policy here. Okay, enough on trying to please every possible god that might exist. Oh, that too. I, that too, yeah. Uh, so there is this Cyrus cylinder that they found that praises Cyrus and so forth and so forth about how great he is. But in Isaiah, there's none of this, as you might guess. Mm -hmm. Isaiah lists three reasons which have to do with the nature, character, and purpose of God, namely verses 3, 4, and 6. So let's read these again. Verse 3, this is 40, chapter 45, verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by name. In other words, Cyrus will know that it's Yahweh who's doing this. Verse 4, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. So this is a little confusing here, that Cyrus might know that this is Yahweh, but yet he doesn't know me. Uh, well, this is in a background of paganism here. I mean, there's all, every nation's got its own God, right? And it's not clear that Cyrus extricated himself from this. I mean, he may have been involved in all this so was Cyrus a believer in Yahweh well in, in a certain sense yes I mean he knew that Yahweh had done this did he have a personal relationship with Yahweh well I don't know maybe <laughs> maybe yes maybe no we'll it's not clear <laughs> yeah There's a day coming on one, we will know yeah go ahead Jim I was going to say that he was still holding on personal life well, well yes 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 well, and his main god there was Marduk. That was the big one for, it seems, for Cyrus. So, anyway, uh, okay. And verse six, that people may know. And here's another reason that, that Cyrus is being called: that people may know from the rising of the sun, and from the west, that there is no god. There's none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So another reason for the anointing of Cyrus would be an evangelistic reason that the whole world may know. 
that Yahweh is God. Yeah, that was that's another point. Yeah. So this is how Isaiah listed out about how why Cyrus was called to do this. It wasn't because of his greatness or his, his beauty or all this, because God wanted to. He, God wants to redeem the world, so that's why he called Cyrus out. And it wasn't because of Cyrus's kindness either. No, it was just God said, this is what you're going to do, and that's what he did. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, let's go on then. Does anybody have anything else here? I'm just babbling away. You haven't got to a form of light quick. Yeah, well, I'll be there. In, yeah, we'll be there in a second. Yeah. So when he, when he calls Cyrus his Messiah or his Christ, I mean, that's the Greek version. It's yes. Christ. I mean, yes. So, so he's just saying, I've designated the purpose for this person. I'm in charge of what's going on Indeed. here. Is that how you're... Let, uh, yes, I've got a lot on that. Let me just read okay. that. Yeah, okay. let me read that here. So we're talking about Messiah then, uh, the, which is a good question. I mean, what are we talking about exactly here? Okay, Mashiach means anointed one. That's what it means. It occurs about 40 times in the Old Testament, so it's a common word. It, the verb could refer to rubbing a shield with oil, possible, or painting a house. You anoint the house with paint. <laughs> it is used in connection with religious rituals, that, as in with the tabernacle or the service of the altar. They anoint the altar with oil. It is used with induction. Maybe Connor, this is what he's saying. It is used with induction in some leadership offices, like Samuel's anointing of Saul and of David as kings in Israel. He anoints them. He Mashiachs them. You know, there's all so it's used. The word's used a lot in the Old Testament. I, I, I think, due to our New Testament orientation, and perhaps rightly so. I mean, when we hear Messiah, oh, it's the Messiah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what we we know. But it was a fairly common word uh, in the Old Testament. Forty times, more or less, it's used. And but there seems to be a a. Uh, a very clear Christological use of the term Messiah in the Old Testament. For instance, in Psalm chapter 2, the Lord, uh, why not? Uh, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine the vain thing? The kings of the earth have set themselves together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Yeah, so there's a fairly clear messianic use there. Also, I would say there's a fairly clear messianic use of the word Messiah in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, when the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing after a certain number of years pass. <laughs> what a prophecy. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. Uh, well, that's what I have on, on, on Messiah. Uh, I hope that helps. It is what did you say the Hebrew word was again? Mashiach. Mashiach. Mm -hmm. It's very similar. Mashiach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, God made it clear um, that he had chosen Nebuchadnezzar as a tool of his judgment. And he's making clear that he's making Cyrus the tool of his salvation. You know, particularly when you uh, see it through the, uh, the window of Israel and the land. You know? Yeah. Right now, you know, Israel, Israel's promise was the land, and, and that's that's like that's where it tops out. Uh, so, Indeed. 
Cyrus you know, saving them and sending them back to the land, you know, really does have kind of a salvific uh, it, does, it does and I, and I think we can illustrate that in a lot of different ways uh, I'm going to have one illustration here about that um, let me read a little more so the problem perhaps for us here in Isaiah is that Cyrus is not a Jew so this word anointed one is applied to a non-Jew here uh, and he is a worshiper of Marduk and perhaps other gods as well uh, so if the anointed one is some kind of an ideal Hebrew king, then we have a riddle here to try to figure out. However, God calls Cyrus an anointed one. Cyrus is chosen for a specific purpose. He will play a key role in the return of the Jews from exile into Israel. He is chosen and anointed for this specific purpose. This is his task. And he sends back his also, also, it all got to be, got to be there. All right, here we go, Craig. Thank you, and let's continue with what you said. So, the crucial role for, of Cyrus has prophetic significance in various ways. And this is the we could use many examples. For instance, how could Micah's prophecy about the future Messiah be fulfilled without Cyrus? The prophet Micah then says, uh, uh, yes, let me just read it. Micah says, this is Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from the ancient days. Micah 5, 2. Jesus said in John 10, The scripture cannot be broken. So every prophecy in the Old Testament, no matter how bizarre maybe it may seem to us, <laughs> these all have to be fulfilled. I mean, these are, these are all going to be fulfilled, uh, not on our scholarship evidence, but on the Word of Christ. Christ. Christ says Scripture can't be broken. I mean, I'm not going to break Scripture. You're not going to break Scripture. He's the Logos. Indeed. So... Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. They lived approximately in the same time frame. Uh, they both prophesied the exile, say, about a hundred years before it took place. Therefore, since Micah's prophecy cannot be broken, Israel must be regathered and Cyrus was the chosen vessel. So Israel must be returned to the land so that the Jews can possess Bethlehem so that Mary and Joseph can make a trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and so Messiah can be born in Bethlehem. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, so it's necessary that the Jews be regathered. They have to be regathered you know, from Babylonian captivity. It's, and it really, it's not about the Jews. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. Well, we'll see, we'll see Everything is. This, that's going on right now. You know, especially the, this next verse about God creating light and darkness. Indeed. Well, that's and disaster. Good good so, good case, know, yes. Because the, there's the enemy, the factions of the enemy do not want Israel to be Israel. No. And no. God has already said 
Israel's going to be. They have the land, so. so. I mean, <laughs> there's a conflict there somewhere. You know, some, something's going to have to give. Somebody's going to win. And somebody's going to have to die. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's going to experience disaster to the yeah. last. Yeah. And some are going to experience prosperity. Oh, there you, you know, go. So, That's, you know, I mean, we, I mean, it's going to happen. That's what you say. I mean, these things are going to God's word will be fulfilled. That's a good illustration of that verse. Let's go back to verse three. God says, "I will give you the treasures of darkness." He's talking to Cyrus and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. So, in one sense, among all these gods. Cyrus will know that it's Yahweh who's, who's doing this right here. He's calling Israel back. Um, I have a comment here from Theodoret of Seir. Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure how totally this applies, but, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. <laughs> this is a, a comment of Theodoret of Seir on the Song of Solomon. And there's a line in the Song of Solomon where the woman says to the man, Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. So Theodoret wants to comment on the chambers. And he says, She is admitted to the inner chamber, the quarters and rooms of the bridegroom, and boastfully says of her own retinue, The king introduced me into his chamber. That is, he revealed to me his hidden purposes. The plan concealed from ages and generations. He made known to me the treasures, obscure, hidden, and unseen. He opened to me in keeping with the prophecy of Isaiah. So Theodoret uh, uh, connects that phrase about his chambers with this verse here in Isaiah 45, that I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places and so forth. I'm not sure that's right, but... Uh, Anyway, that's what Theodore thought. Yes. I don't have the chapter and verse. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Can I invoke another church father? Please do so. Origen said that this is about the giving of the scriptures and the mysteries of the scriptures to God's people. Oh, about the I will give you the treasures and the hordes and secret places. Okay. Oh, on Isaiah. Yes. Uh, so God says to his anointed one, to his Messiah, yes. the secrets of all that I've been doing belong to you. Well, that's what happens in the scriptures. Through Christ, the scriptures are revealed to us. Oh, through the anointed one. Through the ultimate Messiah. That was how Origen saw it. Okay. Paul says that multiple places. That we've been given we've been given insights into this mystery of God. Yeah. We have when God has opened up these mysteries to us yeah. that, that other people can't have. I mean, you know, it has to be a God thing. No one's saved basically without God showing himself. Without revelation, yeah. So, well, praise the Lord. Very good. Uh, so, let's uh, keep going then. Cyrus will recognize, as we've said, that it is Yahweh who prepared these things for him. Whether he had faith in Yahweh as his exclusive God is an open question, at least in my mind. Uh, okay, let's go to verse 4, 45-4. And we've got about five minutes and we'll stop. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. So again, he's talking to Cyrus here. All right, In one sense, you know me. In another sense, you don't know me. 
Well, in another way, I mean, we could probably say that about ourselves. I mean, <laughs> we know God, we know Christ, but really, I mean, do you know the inner heart of Christ? I mean, really. <laughs> do you know the essence of God? Uh, really. <laughs> Maybe not. A lot of people acknowledge God. Yeah, that's true. Who was it at that's true. Yes. 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 Not today. <laughs> I'm not going today. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Uh, okay. Ver okay. Verse four. Verse five. I am the Lord. There is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know. Once again, though you do not know me. Why am I doing all this? Verse six. That people may know. From the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Once again, this whole Cyrus thing has a worldwide evangelistic purpose. It's not just about Cyrus. It's not just about the Jews. It's about you and me also way on out there in the future, thousands of years out in the future in terms of all of us. And, you know, I mean, we're born, we're little kids. I mean, we grow up. I mean, hey, at some point we believe in Christ. Yeah, it's about us too. God's bringing in all this multitude uh, into his kingdom. And, and, and Cyrus here is simply having a role in all of this worldwide expansion of the gospel. I, you know, I mean, anyone, we can't fathom how how a mind can can contain every everything in time and space at the same time. Only God could. And so he, I mean, he knew this before the creation of the universe. Oh, certainly. You know, I mean. I mean, how, how can you, how do you keep all that stuff straight? <laughs> <laughs> Only God could. Uh, Only God, okay, verse. That's what he, that's what he, he tells Job about. Mm -hmm. When you get to the point where you can kind of understand what causes the, the, uh, the beast of the field to learn how to survive. <laughs> yeah. And when you get it all figured out, then maybe we'll talk. Right? <laughs> okay, let's do a couple of more verses real quick here. Verses six and seven. And we'll stop here at 7. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Okay, comment by the church fathers on verse 6 that they all may know me. Or, or beside me there is no God. Uh, let's see. I'm the Lord and there is no other. And there is no other. Yeah. Tertullian. And this, I think these two quotes show you where the minds of these early church fathers dwelt. It's not, it's not so much where my mind dwells, but where, where they dwelt. Uh, Tertullian, and inasmuch as this, this son is undivided and inseparable from the father, so is he to be reckoned as being in the father, even when he is not named. The fact is, if he had named him expressly, he would have separated him, saying in so many words, Beside me there is none else except my son. In short, he would have made his son actually another after accepting him from others. Mm -hmm. Chrysostom, the prophets were not denying the son, God forbid, 
but they wished to cure the Jews of their weakness and meanwhile to persuade them to give up their belief in the many gods that did not exist. I don't think I would even be led to, toward that kind of thinking on this verse. What, what am I saying? The church fathers' minds were eaten up with the Christological meaning of the Old Testament. They had to do that to defend themselves against the Jews. If the church fathers had not had a Christological reading of the Old Testament, I, I, this is crazy to say, I don't think the Christian faith would have survived. I think the Jews would have won. They were battling Jewish exegetes. So the Jews have their Bible, and they have their Hebrew and all that stuff, and they're reading their Bible, and say, well, this is what it is. And the church fathers say, no, it's about Christ. And they had to do that to try to establish the faith and defend the faith. At least that's what I think. Fighting against those dogs. Those <laughs> yeah. those All of that. All right, verse 7, and we'll stop. Uh, I form light, create darkness, well-being, create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God then is the creator. Well-being and calamity here are the words shalom and ra. Shalom, peace, well-being, so forth. Uh, ra, adversity, evil, bad, or disagreeable. Uh, David brought out a good case, also in the case of ancient Israel. God brings shalom to ancient Israel, peace, prosperity. He also brings times of weeping, gnashing of teeth, defeat, exile, etc. Who does all this? God says, I'm the one who does it. So that's it. All right, that's all I have. Thank you for your attention. We'll see you next week, Lord.